Hello, readers. Michael Schellenberger is a Time Magazine Hero of the Environment, the winner of the 2008 Green Book Award from the Stevens Institute of Technology's Center for Science Writings, an invited expert reviewer of the next assessment report for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a writer on energy and the environment for the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and more for a couple of decades. Founder and president of an independent, nonpartisan research organization called Environmental Progress. And he's the author of the new book, Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. Michael, thank you for the time today. How you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. All right. So, Michael, this book, started out as something to promote the value of nuclear energy. You have said that in interviews over these last few weeks, but at some point you also decided to rail against the catastrophizing of climate change with what you like to call rational environmentalism. Was there an epiphanous moment that led to this additional focus within this book? Well, it was building up. I mean, it was last year when AOC said the world's going to end in 12 years. Extinction Rebellion, a climate activist group in Britain, said that billions of people will die and that climate change is killing children. And we started seeing very clear signs of rising anxiety and depression among kids for a variety of factors. Probably social media is to blame, but also this really apocalyptic rhetoric, I think, was causing real harm. My daughter's 14. She's fine because I talked to her about the science, but her friends are very scared and people don't know anything. I mean, <laughs> people think plastic straws cause, cause climate change, for example. Um, so we just, I just felt like we needed to just kind of start with a blank piece of paper, go through the science, and distinguish for people what's science and what's science fiction. Let's talk about some of those things you just mentioned there. AOC, in promoting the Green New Deal, literally said the world is going to end in 12 years if something drastic isn't done. Axios asked a number of scientists about this assertion. What did they say? Well, they say it's nonsense, of course. I mean, you have to remember um, that when they say we have uh, the world's going to end in 12 years, what they're saying is that a set of policies need to be implemented within 12 years to keep temperatures from rising above a certain level. But even that's uncertain. I mean, the, the, if you double the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, scientists estimate it would increase global temperatures between one and a half and four and a half degrees centigrade. A huge amount of uncertainty about how much it would warm. But then the really area, the area of most uncertainty is what would the impacts be? One of the big debates that's been triggered by the book is whether or not natural disasters will even get worse from climate change. There's some evidence that higher temperatures will make hurricanes, wind speed faster. It could make it, it you know, lead to more heat waves. But that's a separate question from whether or not it results in more people dying. The good news is, is that the deaths from natural disasters have declined 90% over the last 100 years. Food surpluses have increased dramatically it's hard to see a scenario where that reverses itself, where suddenly we're not able to grow enough food or more people start dying from natural disasters. I mean, there are risks that higher temperatures bring, but it's just been so grossly over-exaggerated that I think we've ended up neglecting a bunch of more important environmental problems. Speaking of, are we all screwed if sea levels rise by two to three feet in 2100, like the IPCC suggests? For me, this is really what epitomizes the idea that we're all just sort of somehow helpless against our natural environments. 
I made reference in the book to the fact that the Netherlands became a rich country starting 400 years ago by farming below sea level. They constructed these elaborate dikes and canals and flood management systems. They became good engineers by living sometimes up to seven meters below sea level, which is about uh, 21 feet. So, no, I think, um, you know, are there some parts of the world where it will be cheaper for people living on the coast to move farther inland? Sure. Is that the end of the world? Not at all. Mostly, um, and in fact, it could be good for the natural environment. I think we've overdeveloped a lot of coastlines. So sea level rise is, is I, I think, a big nothing burger, it really. Um, what, what you really find is just what matters is whether the government is working for the people, whether you're developing your infrastructure properly, there was um, an earlier version of IPCC summary for policymakers that emphasized that these are manageable problems that have to do with good government. I think we need to get back to that. It just things have gotten so far from reality. And I think that makes sense to some extent. Those of us in rich countries have just forgotten that we have this incredible infrastructure that our ancestors and grandparents built for us of flood control and uh, agricultural systems. It's really quite remarkable. I think we should we should appreciate the civilization that we've inherited a lot more. And you do a great job of providing some specific examples of the importance of economic development to understanding the impact of climate change. Who is a Congolese woman named Bernadette, and how does she serve as an example of this? Well, one of the things I wanted to do was to tell this story through personal character through characters and individual people. So one of the things that you hear a lot is that climate change is going to hurt people in poor countries the most. So I went to one of the poorest countries in the world, which is the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Central Africa. You know, the average income is about 500 or $600 a year. And I was interviewing people around one of the big national parks, which is the home to the mountain gorillas and really incredible. It's also the birthplace of, of Homo sapiens. And I interviewed a woman whose crops had been eaten the night before by baboons. And she becomes a character in the book because I wanted to illustrate how she has a lot of things to worry about. There's a civil war going on, There's, or at least a banditry going on now. There's routine flooding. They are you know, literally some of the poorest people in the world. She never thinks about climate change. It's <laughs> not something that she would worry about. And that the difference... You know, let's say that we end up getting two or three more inches of rainfall a year in my home state of California and also in the Congo. Well, that increased rainfall is going to matter a lot less to flooding than just having a flood control system. I mean, my home, I'm in the hills. We're protected by, we have gutters and culverts um, and other ways to, re to divert the water from around our house. Well, Bernadette doesn't have that. Her home floods um, because they don't have paved roads, they don't have culverts, they don't have um, hydroelectric dam system or dikes. So I wanted to just remind people of that reality that, that I think people look at our world and we think it's natural, but it's really we live in a built environment. And there's still 2 billion people in the world that rely on wood and dung as their primary source of energy. Are they more vulnerable to climate change? Sure, but they're more vulnerable to everything right now. And I think the focus on climate change has distracted us from dealing with more pressing development needs. 
The numbers show that California has seen an increase in forest fires over time. How much of this is a result of climate change versus factors like new home construction and or a reduction of controlled burns? Well, if you listen to the news media out here, you would think that all of our fires are caused by climate change. But when you interview the top scientists on this, what they say is that basically the increase in fires, and there's two kinds, by the way, there's kinds in the Sierra forests, the mountain forests, and then there's fires in what they call the chaparral or the um, uh, the brush fires. Uh, and the the forest fires in the mountains are can be entirely explained by just the fact that they stopped doing controlled burns. In fact, they would put out the fires. And so you've had this accumulation of wood fuel in the forests. And then in terms of the fires on, on the coasts in places like Oakland or Malibu or Berkeley, where I live, it's just due to the fact that we have a lot more houses living, a lot of more houses near forests. I mean, we're all here in California because we love the natural world. We get so close to it that we make ourselves more vulnerable to it. Is climate change making the fire season longer? Yes, for sure. But that doesn't mean that it's actually making more fires. There's just these much more significant factors behind fires than climate change. In 2006, a group of the world's leading climate change experts came together to gauge humans' impact on natural disasters. What conclusions did they come to? The funny thing is there's this expert consensus right now that there is no evidence that climate change is making natural disasters worse. I mean, how could it? We've seen this huge decline in deaths from natural disasters. We've seen no increase in damage to property from hurricanes or floods or other natural disasters. So that's the expert consensus. That's what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says. That's what the Hockenhammer consensus, which you just mentioned, refers to. Sometimes people think that I'm splitting hairs or something. They point out that Again, we can see some extreme events getting worse, but we pay attention to disasters because if hurricanes become a bit stronger, but they don't cause more damage or kill more people, nobody cares. I mean, why would you? You know, just like you don't care when a hurricane doesn't touch ground, we don't care if it doesn't cause more damage. What we're concerned about is that it could make disasters worse, and so far we're not seeing that. If we do see it, all the more reason to not be blurring the line between extreme weather events and disasters right now. And to your point on perception versus reality, of course, most of us do know and understand that carbon emissions do affect temperatures, but how are developed nations like the U.S. doing on cutting those in relation to the IPCC predictions for 2040? We're doing pretty well, actually. I mean, this is the funny thing. I think nobody knows any of the good news, but the fact of the matter is is that most rich countries are seeing their carbon emissions decline. Germany, France, and Britain have had their emissions been going down since the mid-70s. They've been going down for almost 15 years in the United States, mostly from the transition from coal to natural gas. We have gotten much better at getting natural gas, both fracking, cracking the shale about a mile underground in the United States, but in most of the world it comes from these big offshore finds. And gas is not perfect, but it's just a heck of a lot better than coal. I think everybody knows that. So this is some great news that we should be highlighting because I think it gets us in a position to kind of go, look, you know, right now it appears that we're on track to be much closer to three degrees centigrade increase over pre-industrial temperatures than four degrees. You know, while any amount of warming, all else being equal, is undesirable, all else isn't equal. The cause of climate change is the use of fossil fuels 
And that energy is used to make our lives better. It's resulted in life expectancy increasing from 40 years to 70 years. We basically reduced infant mortality to near zero in most rich countries. One of the leading economists on this, who won the Nobel Prize for his work on climate change, estimated that the optimal temperature for increased above pre-industrial levels will be four degrees. Well, we're going to come in at three degrees. So it's, again, it's not the end of the world. It doesn't mean that there won't be some problems, but this is not anything like people imagine it to be. Many believe the Amazon rainforest is the Earth's lungs. But is the Amazon a major source of our planet's oxygen supply? Well, this is a really funny one because the two things that people say about the Amazon are first that it's the Earth's lungs and then second that it's the Earth's oxygen supply. Well, both can't be true because what the lungs do is they absorb oxygen and they emit carbon. What the Amazon does is it absorbs carbon. And then does it produce net oxygen? Well, most people think it does. It does not. In other words, if you just cut down all the Amazon, heaven forbid, and put up a parking lot, it would have basically no impact whatsoever on oxygen. And the reason is is that there's a process called respiration, which is a process of breaking down the plant matter, and that uses oxygen. Oxygen is the fuel to break down plant matter. So basically, Amazon produces as much oxygen as it creates. I think the bigger point, though, is that in efforts to save the Amazon, Greenpeace in particular has actually worsened forest fragmentation. And the reason is because they've had this dogmatic view that small agricultural farms are better for the environment than big ones, and that just turns out not to be the case. In fact, we produce much more food on less land in bigger, more intensified farming. So I point out that if you really care about the Amazon, which I do, in fact, I lived there, I talk about it in the book, we want to have more contiguous intact primary forests, so the big apex predators like the big cat species, but also bird species, all sorts of other species can exist. And when the forest is just broken into different chunks, fragmented by farms, which is really what Greenpeace has created, then we end up getting a significant biodiversity loss. Has the earth gained or lost more trees over the last 35 years and why? So 40% of the world is reforesting, and we've seen basically what's happening in Brazil is similar to what happened in Europe between 900 and 1900, which is, you know, Europe and the United States a little bit later. Really, we, we cut down much of our forests and replaced them with ranches and farms. Now, between 1900 and today, a lot of European forests have grown back. It's an incredible success story. It's the greening of the planet. And so what we're seeing is continued loss of forests in tropical countries, but reforestation in rich countries. And I think that prevents a very positive future. It means that as poor countries develop, we should start to see reforestation there as well. How big of a problem is plastic waste in our oceans? You know, plastic waste in the oceans does impact sea life. We certainly see whales, sea turtles, other marine life dying because of eating too much plastic waste. But I don't think it's the most significant threat to sea life. I think that pretty clearly comes both from overfishing and from the killing of sea animals, including birds, seabirds, as bycatch from fishery operations. And one of the most amazing things I discovered while researching Apocalypse Never 
was that plastic was actually important to saving a number of species that we were killing to use as plastics. So the original plastics were made from elephants, the tusks. We used ivory as the original bioplastic. Tortoise shell glasses, which are those brown spackled glasses that all of us have, those used to be made not out of tortoise shell, but out of sea turtle shell. And so I talk about this really famous viral video where a woman, a sea marine biologist, pulls a plastic straw out of a sea turtle's nose <laughs> and it goes viral. Well, it turns out that one, some of the sea turtles that she works with had been harvested for their shells to make items, jewelry glasses, out of this bioplastic. So there are problems with plastic waste. Mostly it's from poor countries that don't have waste management systems. In rich countries like the United States and Europe and Japan, we mostly capture the plastic waste before it goes into the streams and rivers. And so I point out that if you really care about plastic waste, and I think we should, even if it's not the most important problem in the world, then we should want economic development in poor countries so that they have the resources to create a waste management system. Does banning plastic straws and plastic bags, does that help out with this issue? No, it doesn't. (laughs) That's the short answer. Plastic is actually much less energy intensive than paper. You have to use a paper bag over 40 times to make it as environmentally sound as a plastic bag. It's funny because what we make plastic out of is a byproduct from petroleum and natural gas production. And so when you make things into plastic and we use them and then they go into the landfill, you actually end up sequestering that carbon permanently. Where you don't have enough land, the United States mostly we use landfill because we have a lot of land, but in Europe where there's not enough land or in Japan, they just incinerate it. It releases some of the carbon. It's not a ton of carbon. But again, what really matters is that you have, again, the story of development where many of the biggest environmental problems are problems of poverty and underdevelopment with economic development allows us to create the systems that we need in order to contain our waste and capture it so it doesn't go into the natural environment. Nike is notorious for the use of sweatshops in third world countries to make its products. But is there an argument to be made that the positive impacts of manufacturing in these places actually outweighs the negatives? Well, yeah. And 20 years ago, I helped start a campaign against Nike for its sweatshops in Asia, its factories in Asia. But over time, I've come to see that the women that work in these factories really prefer working in those factories rather than working on the farm. Most of them come from the countryside where their life choices are much more limited than when they're in the big city working in a factory. And what that process involves, when a young woman or a young man move from the countryside to the city, they're no longer producing food. The people that remain on the farm have to produce more food, and they embrace things like fertilizer, irrigation, and tractors, which allow for much more food to be grown on less land. And that is the most important thing for for preserving endangered species because humankind's biggest impact by far on natural landscapes is farming. And so if you can reduce our, our agricultural footprint, then we will end up leaving more room on earth for nature. And so that process of industrialization and urbanization actually turns out to be one of the most important things for protecting the natural world. The negative public perception of nuclear power plants is beginning to change. Even still, accidents like Three Mile Island and Fukushima stick in people's minds. 
why should we fully embrace the value of nuclear energy over other supposedly eco-friendly methods? So the way to think about all energy and its impact on the national environment is through this concept of energy density. It's kind of amazing that most people have never heard of it because it's like the concept of gravity for physics. It's really fundamental. So every fuel contains an amount of energy relative to its mass. So a lump of wood has about half the energy as a lump of coal, but a lump of uranium, which is the element that we use to split apart to make nuclear, has a million times as much energy. And so what that means is that you can produce all the energy for your entire life from a single Coke can worth of uranium. And that's remarkable because what that means is that you're having to do a lot less mining. You're going to have to use much less land for producing huge quantities of energy. The reason people are so scared of nuclear really has to do with the association with nuclear weapons, which truly are scary. (laughs) That's how they work. That's why they prevent countries from going to war with each other, as we saw with China and India earlier this year. So that association is totally understandable. It was actually emphasized by people opposed to nuclear energy for really reasons that had nothing to do with nuclear weapons or the environment. And I think that attitudes are starting to change. You have to remember, though, nuclear is such a radical, revolutionary technology. I mean, the idea that you can make huge amounts of heat without a fire itself is sort of shocking, especially when you consider that humans evolved with fire. Pre-human ancestors used fire to cook meat, which allowed our intestines to shrink, our brains to grow. And so nuclear is, I mean, 10,000 years from now, whatever we are at that point, we'll still look back at nuclear as this revolutionary moment. So I point out that the technology itself is very young. We're still getting used to it. It makes sense that we have such superstitious views of it, given how radical it is. And so my view is that there are places, you see it, Canada, France, fairly liberal places that have come to see nuclear for what it is, which is really the most beautiful fuel. I mean, it's a way of basically powering human civilization with no smoke, no pollution, no air pollution, no water pollution. And then the so-called waste is just the used fuel rods of which there's tiny amounts that can be stored on site. So the long-standing ecological dream has been of a circular economy, and that economy is only made possible with nuclear. So the 2019 HBO show Chernobyl suggested that a nuclear reactor could become an atomic bomb if things really go haywire. Is there any truth to that? There's zero truth, and it's very simple to explain. The uranium in a bomb is enriched to a level of 90%, whereas the uranium in nuclear power plants is enriched well below 10%. Hmm. So there's physically no way that the fuel could become like a bomb. But again because of this radical nature of nuclear weapons. It made sense. And by the way, Chernobyl is happening, you know, in the 1980s when the Cold War had heated up again. There had been a period of what they called detente, of relaxation of tensions between the United States and Soviet Union. Those were ramped up again in the 1980s. And so in the Soviet Union, in the United States, the fears of nuclear power were very high that I think really had to do with the fact that it was associated with the weapons rather than the power plants. Now, you advocated for solar power with the new Apollo project in 2002. Why do you no longer look at solar as a reliable, renewable energy for the average household? 
Again, it comes back to the power density. So it takes about 400 times more land to generate the same amount of electricity from a solar farm as a nuclear plant or a natural gas plant. So you just require huge amounts of land, and you have to just absolutely cover the landscape with these panels. The panels themselves produce two to 300 times more waste than nuclear plants do. Those solar panels, they only last for 20 to 25 years, then they end up getting dumped in landfills or dumped in Africa. So they're actually quite toxic, dirty materials. They require huge amounts of mining, 17 times more materials. So for me, as somebody that cares about wildlife, that is concerned about shrinking the human footprint rather than expanding it, renewables are taking us in the wrong direction. The reliability also turns out to be fundamental. The way that electricity is so cheap is that we always are using the exact same amount of it that we're producing. So that's what the electric grid is. We don't store a lot of electricity because it's very expensive to do that. Just at a physical level, you're having to convert the electricity into a battery or a pumped hydro, which is like a hydroelectric dam, and then back into electricity. And those two conversion processes make the electricity much more expensive. So that turns out to be very, very important to being able to keep electricity cheap and reliable. And solar and wind just end up introducing a lot of chaos and externalizing a lot of additional costs onto the electrical system. Fascinating to learn that for sure. Now, you point out that some of the biggest contributors to man-made climate change, like ExxonMobil, for instance, are not only guilty of selling fossil fuels, but also pumping billions into misinformation campaigns, despite documentation that they've known about fossil fuels warming the planet since the 1970s. Have climate change activists taken some of this money, too? Well, this is really shocking. I mean, one of the things I discovered in my research is that all of the biggest climate change organizations accept money not just from renewable energy companies, but also from natural gas companies. The Sierra Club has taken over $100 million from natural gas interests over the last 10 years. And they haven't been honest about it. They've been hiding their donors. And meanwhile, they go around and accuse all of their opponents. They accuse everybody else of somehow being corrupted by money. I point out that what they've done is they have particularly focused on nuclear. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of it is, as I said, the fear of the bomb. But some of it also appears to be the fact that they don't want to solve these problems. I mean, that may sound a little bit strange, but... When you get right down to it, if you really cared about climate change, you would support transitioning from coal to natural gas and then to nuclear power, but they don't support that. In fact, they actively oppose it and insist on technologies like solar and wind that simply can't replace fossil fuels. That's I think, raises some real deep questions, which I addressed in the last part of the book, which I think have to do not just with money, but also with the desire for social and political power and really, ultimately, the ways in which environmentalism has become a new religion for people that think they are secular. He is Michael Schellenberger, a Time Magazine Hero of the Environment, winner of the 2008 Green Book Award from the Stevens Institute of Technology Center for Science Writings. He's also the author of the new book, Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Michael, thank you so much for the time today, man. Thanks for having me.